welcome to Nelda Live. Join your host, Nelda Sue Yor, as she talks to the artists, dreamers, storytellers, and pioneers to learn about their inspiration and the tools and techniques they use to make a difference. You too might be inspired, because as Nelda likes to say, sometimes all it takes is a spark. Here's Nelda. Today on Nelda Live, I'm speaking with Dr. Lisa Muscani, an expert on brain health, aging, Alzheimer's, and diet. She'll share her deep insights into the challenges for brain health, as well as critical diet and lifestyle changes we can all make to maximize our chances for healthy aging. There has been great progress in this area, and hopefully we can apply her advice to live longer, healthier lives. Dr. Moscone, it is so nice to have you here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. So you have studied brain health. So yeah. you can tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been focused on. Sure. So I am a neuroscientist by training. I'm a brain scientist. I have a dual PhD in neuroscience and nuclear medicine, which is a branch of radiology. And I am from Florence in Italy. So my accent is a mix of Italian, French, which is my second language, and well, I guess English at this point. And I moved to New York a long time ago to do my PhD. And I now work in Wild Cornet Medicine in New York City on the Upper East Side. I am the founder and director of the Women's Brain Initiative at Wild Cornell and also the Associate Director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic at Wild Cornell Medicine. And you've written two books centered on having a healthy brain, right? I did. What is a healthy brain? What is a healthy brain? I believe a healthy brain to be a brain that is really happy, functional, strong, resilient, and aging gracefully, where aging is not necessarily when you're 80 or 90, but throughout your entire Mm. life. I I believe then um, continued mental health is really an incredible blessing. And I've been looking into ways to really support the brain and nourish the brain and all those things that we can do that are in our power and control to do to really promote brain health at any age, but really for the long term. I'm very interested in the long term. So what are those factors in having a healthy brain? There are many different factors and there are some that are really well researched and others that are just being explored. Now, I think my, my eight pillars of Alzheimer's prevention are diet for sure is a really, really super important key factor exercise also really important mental stimulation or intellectual activity then sleep and stress reduction obviously we want to sleep more and stress less and then there are other factors like avoiding toxins going for regular medical checkups uh really improving hormonal health which i think we're going to talk about more today because our hormones are such important drivers of brain health and we just never talk about it so Lifestyle controls most of this. Um, and I think, don't we usually think it's genetics? We sure do. Yes. So I should have mentioned before when you gave me the opportunity that um, I've been studying brain health and brain aging for 20 years, in part because I'm interested in it, but 
in real big part because I have a strong family history of Alzheimer's disease mm. that affects the women in my family. So my grandmother was one of four siblings, three sisters and one brother, and all the sisters developed Alzheimer's disease and died of it. Wow. Whereas the brother was spared. And so I was really scared when that happened. We didn't know that much about Alzheimer's disease back then. And like you said, pretty much everyone thought of Alzheimer's disease as being caused by genetics or aging or both, a combination of the two. And it turns out that actually genes are not your destiny, even as far as Alzheimer's disease is concerned, and that aging is not a linear trajectory towards dementia or an inevitable pathway towards dementia. But then a lot of our future and the future of our brain is really in our hands. And this really combination of factors from genetic risks, of course, but also your your medical health, your medical report card, like I read in the books, and your environment and lifestyle, they really determine how your brain is going to age in the future and what your actual risk is. So it's really multifactorial. There are so many things that are just as important as your actual DNA. So let's talk about, you have this new book and uh, because of all of your focus on women's brain health. So it's okay. it's, it's the XX brain, is that correct? Yeah, this brain, yes. The is. XX brain, the groundbreaking science empowering women to maximize cognitive health and prevent Alzheimer's disease. So tell us a little bit about what you've discovered. That book is really the summary of 20 years of work and research. Yes, it was really, I really put my heart and soul into the book because women's brains are the major focus of my research. They've always been in my, you know, my entire career, my entire academic career is really focused on, on women's brains. And I really wanted to book the book to be a guide for all women. So a women's guide to enhancing brain health and prevention dementia. I wanted to take the research out of the lab and really make it not only accessible, but also really actionable to everyone. And the important thing to me was really to provide recommendation and information that was based on science. Mm. I think there, there's so much confusion around women's health and brain health and the last thing we need is another internet website telling us to buy more supplements. So I really just wanted the science to to mm. be the focus of the book. Uh, you know, that's that's so wonderful. We've been talking to so many different uh, scientists, science researchers, and, right. and we really want to try to get a handle on what's the most recent knowledge and, and ability. Yeah. So can we predict brain health issues ahead of time? In many cases, yes. I, I believe strongly in prevention. Obviously, I work at the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic. And I think the field is not necessarily, not everybody's on the same page relative oh. to even just using the word prevention. Oh. We, at some point, we were, we submitted a paper where we used the word prevention and, and two reviewers said, you can't really talk about prevention yet. You have to, to say risk reduction. We were like, well, yeah, I mean, we can argue <laughs> whether whether or not the term is, is appropriate, but the point is that not, not everybody in neurology and psychiatry believes that prevention is feasible. However, we are talking about risk reduction, which is already a huge 
improvement and step forward relative to even just 10 or eight years ago when no one would really embrace that concept. And I, I think it's just so powerful because there is consensus that at least one third of all Alzheimer's cases could be avoided mm. or prevented perhaps by really focusing on lifestyle and behavioral modifications. So by doing things like improving your diet, improving your exercise, sleeping more, or sleeping better, reducing stress, avoiding toxins, going to the doctor, managing medical conditions that increase the risk of dementia, scientists do agree that all those procedures and interventions substantially lower the risk of Alzheimer's disease and could potentially prevent at least one third of all future Alzheimer's cases. And depending on which report you read, it can be up to half, wow. which is huge, yes. right? So Alzheimer's disease, the most common cause of dementia in the population, we have almost 6 million Alzheimer's patients in the United States alone. And the idea is that if we don't find ways to reduce the risk, delay the onset, minimize the number of new cases, by the year 2050, we're going to face like 15 million Alzheimer's patients, which is for context is the population. So New York City, mm. Los Angeles and Chicago put together. It's frightening and it's wow. only in the United States. And something that we don't talk about enough, at least in my opinion, is that almost two thirds of all those patients are actually women. Wow. Yes, so for every man suffering from Alzheimer's, there are two women. Wow. So I think it's really important to find prevention strategies that really work for everyone, of course, but we believe that this should be diversified. There are some things that work better for men and some things that work better for women. And we don't talk about the things that work better for women that much. So that's a lot of what I was trying to do in the book. Okay, so let's talk about that. Because it is a real epidemic, right? What is the latest thinking on Alzheimer's disease then? So the latest thinking, which is a very recent thinking, mm -hmm. I'm going to say two years, ballpark, okay. is that Alzheimer's disease is, is, can be quite different between the genders. In that men and women may be following somewhat different pathways to brain aging and cognitive decline, where for men, the problem is more cardiovascular in nature. All those things that usually doctors check when you go to the doctor's office, hypertension, high cholesterol, high triglycerides, type two diabetes, those factors seem to really impact risk in men. Whereas for women, and this is a lot of my research is in brain scans, we have shown that the risks are more metabolic and hormonal in nature, menopause being the number one wow. risk for women, or at least something that we really need to pay attention to, which is, I assure you, no neurologist will ask you about your menopause. I mean, they do, of course, because they have to as part of, of the routine clinical workup, but OBGYNs look at menopause, neurologists look at brains, and we just don't talk about enough. Mm. And we believe that it's really the connection between the brain and the reproductive system that drives, in large part, brain aging in women. Mm. Very strange, very strange. 
So Lisa, let's talk about what we can do to keep our brains healthy. Well, yeah, I can talk about it for like days. <laughs> there are many, many things that we can all do today to really support the health of our brains that have nothing to do with medications or prescriptions, but have really everything to do with taking a close look at our lifestyle and finding things that really support the brain and understanding what kind of things harm the brain instead. And this is all based on, on this concept of the brain like a muscle, like a like a as a brain scientist, as a neuroscientist, I always encourage everyone to think more of their brains as a muscle. Like, there are things that you can do to make your brain stronger. You can feed it properly, you can exercise it properly, you can treat it properly, you can take care of it properly, and your brain will perform so much better for you. Really, literally at any age, although there are some periods of time where the gains are maximum. And the other important thing is that men and women can take care of their brains in slightly different ways or in somewhat different ways. And they think that these differences are really important to acknowledge because we can act upon them. So in that, what is the best lifestyle change you recommend? Oh, it depends. I would say it depends on the person and we treat every person as an individual. This is also a new trend in medicine, precision medicine. We're going, we're switching from many, many years of looking at the average person and try to fit the new patient into a pre-existing set or category. Like if you're a man, you go with a man. If you're a woman, you go with a woman within your age range. And we're switching from this one-size-fits-all approach to a very personalized approach where every person is unique and there's really a, a, a very new respect for biological individuality or bio-individuality. So whoever works with us receives very thorough examinations. We look at everything that we can possibly measure. We do a lot of questionnaires. And then we work with the participant or the patient to really identify which aspect of their lifestyle, environment, medical health needs addressing first. If I had to choose one thing to start with, I would go with diet. The reason being most people eat about three times every day. Some people eat a bit more often even if they snack <laughs> or not. And that means that we have at least three chances every single day to make the right choices and feed their brains with the right nutrients that are going to really support brain health and mood and cognitive function or the opposite. We can every single day make the bad choices three times a day and basically harm our brains and increase our chances of developing dementia. And I think as, as a society, we're used to, we're comfortable with the idea that we feed our bodies and that the choices that we make will change the way our bodies look and perhaps have an impact on our waistline, but we're much less aware that we're feeding our brains at the same time, mm -hmm. that all the foods and nutrients that we eat on a regular basis every single day will impact not only the way we look, but also the way we think and feel. So I think diet is fun, right? Everybody likes food in some ways and you have control over it. 
you can cook your own meals, you can decide to use a meal delivery service, you can go on one diet or the other. But what I would encourage everyone is to also think about diets that really benefit the brain. In the same way that we save for retirement or that we try to save for retirement, we should also really eat mm -hmm. for retirement. So you don't want to start when you're 90. You want to start as soon as you can because that's really a big cushion, you know, that it gives you a lot of, it gives you a fallback plan. <laughs> if nothing <laughs> else, it really supports your brain reserve. It makes your brain stronger for longer. Well, let's talk about some of the foods that, yes. that I know that you've recommended and why. Yeah. Okay. So let's start with salmon. Okay. I thought you were going to go with caviar. Yes. There is a lot of research showing that omega-3 fatty acids are really crucial for brain health, not just omega-3 fatty acids, but also phospholipids. It showed another kind of brain fat that is really, really important for the plasticity of the brain, for the integrity of the brain, and for neurons to be able to fire and communicate with each other. Now, omega-3s come from different sources. There are plant-based sources, and then there are animal sources, especially mm -hmm. fish. Now, if you like fish, then it's really important to focus on this mesh fish, where S is for salmon, like you said, M is for mackerel, A for anchovies, smash. Another S for sardines and H for herring. Uh -huh. Basically, fatty fish, cold water fatty fish, because that's really where the highest concentration of omega-3 that works for the brain, is called DHA, can be found naturally. That said, I'm actually plant-based, so I stopped eating fish mm -hmm. a while ago, and I'm getting my omega-3s from plant-based foods. There are many that are really helpful, from almonds, olive oil, hazelnuts, a lot of nuts and seeds, also seaweed, and perhaps the most concentrated source, if anybody else here is plant-based or vegan or vegetarian or just doesn't like fish, which is a lot of people, is flaxseed oil. So one tablespoon of flaxseed oil contains almost all the omega-3s that your brain needs for a day. Wow. Then you have a little bit of almonds or some hazelnuts or something else, and you just... Okay. So let's go ahead, if we could then, and jump, although I want to come yeah. back to caviar. <laughs> <laughs> I miss it. I really miss it so much. I used to love it so much. And, uh, so... Olive oil. I know I just recently yes. had Dr. Gundry on and he, yeah. he's been on the show. He consumes a liter of olive oil per week. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, what are your thoughts on olive oil? I love it. Uh, well, uh, I'm Italian, so <laughs> obviously I'm super biased, but the thing about olive oil is that it's really magical. I mean, from a nutritional and chemical perspective is, is a fantastic oil it's got a really high concentration of monounsaturated fat that is very good for the heart, as well as polyunsaturated fatty acids, like the omega-3s we just discussed, but also contains a lot of vitamin E. Mm -hmm. And vitamin E is an antioxidant, and is actually one of the two most important antioxidants for brain health, vitamin E and vitamin C. 
there are studies, not clinical trials, but very large scale observational studies showing that people who consume enough vitamin E and vitamin C on a daily basis have a 70% lower risk of Alzheimer's disease as wow. compared to people who do not. And these vitamins, you can find them pretty much in, in most plant-based foods. So it really comes down to olive oil for sure, but also other plant-based foods that, by the way, really go well with the olive oil. Mm, yes, <laughs> right? yes. Okay. So I'm a big fan of olive oil. I wouldn't probably be able to consume a liter a week, even if I wanted to. But also, um, olive oil is very rich in uh, phytonutrients. A very specific kind of phytonutrients, they're called polyphenols. They have very strong antioxidant properties. And the thing about the brain is um, the brain is the organ in the entire body that is most sensitive to oxidative stress. And that is a oxidative stress is something, it's a it's a physiologically normal process that, however, makes your cells age faster. It's like free radical production, right? We talk about free radicals for smoking. The same thing happens naturally in the entire body and brain as we get older, but the brain doesn't have antioxidants itself. Mm -hmm. So we really need to import these antioxidants from the diet. And those are polyphenols, other phytonutrients, vitamin C, vitamin E, the omega-3s that are anti-inflammatory and really help. So olive oil is fabulous because it contains all these nutrients in just one tablespoon. Nice. So really good. Yeah, and flaxseed oil is also just this. Okay. <laughs> I'm excited about food. I, I, love, I love plants. I took herbology because I was so interested. Oh, in really? Yeah. Oh, okay. My friends thought I was nuts. Everybody was like neurophysiology and biology, genetics. And I did all that, all of them. Mm -hmm. I love them. Mm -hmm. But then I was like, I really want to do herbology or plant medicine. Or It was fabulous. It was fabulous. <laughs> I'm a bit of a nerd. So, <laughs> so let's go back to caviar for just a second, if you could. Tell us if for those who are eating fish. What about caviar? So the thing about caviar, I never said that people should eat caviar. I'm obviously very aware that it's super expensive. But the point I was trying to make is that if we were to find, to identify one food group or one food type that really mirrors the nutritional composition of the brain, that would be caviar. Wow. Yes. So if you look at the nutrients that are present in caviar, those are perfect for the brain. There are the omega-3s, there are the omega-6, there's the phospholipids, there's iron, there's manganese, there's the B vitamins, and there's also antioxidants, which is very strange in fish food or animal food. Usually they're empty, they're, they're devoid of antioxidants for the most part. But caviar is quite rich, vitamin A, they're all in there beta-carotene, right? Caviar from salmon is, is orange. So there's beta-carotene there, which is a precursor to vitamin A, and vitamin A is really good for the brain as well. So that's why I have it on okay. the cover of brain food, <laughs> one of the key foods, but I'm obviously aware that it's expensive and those is really, it's really hard on the, on the fish. So I, I miss it, however. <laughs> and I even tried vegan caviar, but it's not quite as <laughs> Okay. Well, let's move on to chocolate then. What yes. Oh, yes. Thank you. Well, so chocolate. Oh, my goodness. Uh, dark chocolate is also a magical food. 
-hmm. People use the term superfoods and they, I like that term in some ways. It's not a very scientific uh, term to use, but it does make a point. We're, we're thinking about nutritional density, right? There are some foods that contain a ton of nutrients in a very small amount. And then there are foods that are enormous and contain no nutrients, like iceberg salad, iceberg lettuce, and burger buns, and fast food in general. It's just bad nutrients and a lot of volume. So the focus in nutrition, in brain nutrition, is really on these kind of superfoods, so very nutritionally dense foods, which include the chocolate. Okay. So dark chocolate. I'm sorry. Oh, go, go ahead. Dark chocolate. Yes. So dark chocolate is obviously very rich in cacao. Mm -hmm. And cacao, cacao powder, contains a ton of nutrients, especially theobromine. Theobromine is a very strong antioxidant, which is therefore very good for your brain and for your heart and the entire rest of you. That has a um, stimulating effect like caffeine. It's a vasodilator like caffeine, it makes your veins pop. Oh. So the blood flow can go to the brain a lot faster, but it doesn't give you the jitter like mm -hmm. caffeine sometimes do. So it's a, little, it's a little bit gentler on the body. And one little trick is to have, um, I like to make cacao tea. So I, I just mix hot water and raw cacao powder, very raw, like 100% dark, if you can find it. And then mix it with a plant-based milk, like almond milk or cashew milk or macadamia nut milk, because they contain fat. And what fat does is that it slows down the absorption of theobromine to the brain in the body. And so it evens out. And the effect, you can feel the effects longer, stronger for longer. A longer okay. time. So it's more of a sustained effect. It's, okay. the, it's the same thing with coffee. If oh. you mix it with milk. Mm -hmm. I'll come by this afternoon. We'll have some. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> also, one thing that's really interesting about dark chocolate is that it contains estrogens. Do you know that? No. Yeah. Phytoestrogens or estrogens from plants. And this is important to know for women because as we reach middle age, all women eventually go through menopause. And what happens in menopause is that we tend to lose our estrogens and that creates a number of symptoms for a lot of women like hot flashes, night sweats, insomnia, depression, anxiety, brain fog, forgetfulness, all sorts of problems. So most women will go for hormonal replacement therapy. But something that I, I'm trying to propone, propose in the book is that you can also gain estrogens from your diet. A lot of plant-based foods contain phytoestrogens, so estrogens from plants that act like mild estrogens in the body. So if you eat enough of those foods for a longer period of time, that's effectively like a very mild form of estrogen therapy. And it just so happens that dark chocolate contains catechines, which are, they do have an estrogenic action in the body. And of course, dark chocolate is lovely. There we go. It is lovely. Okay. <laughs> oh, wonderful. So let's talk about wine. Let's do talk about wine. You know, it's, it's exactly the same principle. So wine comes from grapes and grapes are a really good source of natural sugars, especially glucose and fructose, obviously. And glucose is the main energy source for the brain. And they also are very rich in some phytonutrients like one called um, oh actually i'm going to say that in italian probably resveratrol mm. anyway it's a it's an antioxidant 
phytonutrient that has brain protective properties. And that's being linked to consumption of red wine mm. as something that can potentially slow down cognitive decline and prevent against Alzheimer's disease. And I would know, being Italian, where Mediterranean countries have lower rates of dementia mm -hmm. as compared to many other countries. And something that is definitely a staple in the diet is that everybody drinks one or two glasses of red wine every day. Now, they're not big glasses, right? So it's not like the whole bottle, it's just a little bit, but it, it's, it's definitely a mm. consistent feature of these diets, these healthy diets. There's a lot of plant-based phytonutrients with antioxidant power, which is a convoluted way of saying that. These foods slow down brain aging. Mm. Okay. Yeah, they keep your brain young. So one of the things I've been really curious about are mushrooms. Um, some, yeah, some people claim that lion's mane in particular promotes brain health. What, what, what do you think of that? I don't have an opinion. Ah. I'm not aware of any particularly strong research that shows that, but okay. I should look it up. Well, that's just one of the things that we, you know, have been really interested in. So I'll let you know. I'll be interviewing someone soon, hopefully, on that. Good. I skipped over coffee. What about coffee? Ooh. <laughs> coffee is good. So espresso is the beverage with the highest antioxidant power of all beverages, even more so than red wine. Hmm. Yes. Here we go. Yeah. But it's really espresso. So the preparation matters, the way that the coffee beans are roasted, the amount of time that water sits with the powder, everything really counts. And um, espresso has more antioxidant, anti-aging power than other types of coffee. However, you don't want to overdo it with caffeine, right? Obviously, sometimes there are people who are very sensitive, so they can't sleep at night or their heart rate is affected. The research is not conclusive on that, but the research that actually looked into caffeine shows that if you drink no more than one or two espressos a day, in some studies that's been associated with better cognitive performance later in life. It's about 33 milligrams of caffeine. So half a cup of American coffee, I think. <laughs> She's probably not enough. I'm an espresso people. drinker, so I... You I, are? Like, yes, oh, yes. Do I'm you like, make it? Do you have like I a... Do, yeah, I, I, I grind. Yeah, I have a, a melee that grinds it, shoots it. Yeah, two shots of espresso with a little bit of coconut milk. And I'm oh, see? Perfect. Milk and I'm good to go. Yeah, I love nice. that. So, Lisa, what supplements do you recommend? So we propose a very conservative approach to supplementation. And I should disclose here that I'm part of the Global Council on Brain Health that has been uh, put together by AARP. And I'm very proud to be part of the council. It's like over 30 scientists with experience in brain aging, dementia, and diet and nutrition. So it's really a huge source of inspiration for me. And the most recent thing we did, um, and I can share the link, is to really go over all the supplements for brain health and all the claims that are being made and uh, what is the best clinical practice towards supplements. And I think we, we all agree that you need to get tested, right? So if you're deficient, in some supplements, 
then we should supplement. And if you're not, then there's no reason to take supplements. Unless, this is my unless, we want to reach a certain amount of nutrients to optimize brain health. So these are two slightly separate things. One thing is diagnosis and treatment as needed, and another thing is optimization. I do believe in testing. So we do test our patients, and the nutrients that we focus on the most are omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids, saturated fatty acid, um, triglycerides, cholesterol, obviously cholesterol levels. And then we look at B vitamins, especially vitamin B12, folate, and B6, because they're really important for brain health, especially in people with cardiovascular disease or with something called high homocysteine levels, which is a risk factor for vascular dementia. And of course, I look at the antioxidants because I, I really believe they're so, that they're so important. And we have done studies showing that antioxidant vitamins like, again, beta-carotene or vitamin A, C, E, and selenium as well, are really strongly associated with brain energy levels in women. So we screen every patient, we measure these nutrients as much as we can, and then if there's any deficiency, we supplement, and if anybody is interested in optimization, then we try to reach a certain amount of uh, nutrients in the diet. So for example, we know that a lot of studies have shown that if you consume at least six grams of omega-3s every day, then your chances of ending up with dementia are the lowest. Wow. And of course, more research needs to get done, but six grams is not that much to start with, four to six. So we try to shoot for that. We try to intervene with dietary changes first and foremost, and supplements are kind of like a last resort. Unless you're vegan or vegetarian, or you're following a very restrictive diet, and in that case, you do need to supplement to avoid deficiencies. So let's talk about some lifestyle issues, because I just recently had Professor Matt Walker on talking about lack of sleep. And so such, such an amazing person and also yes. its connection to Alzheimer's. Right. Uh, so let's talk about sleep from your viewpoint. <laughs> we need it. <laughs> we all need more. So there seems to be a connection between poor quality sleep, disturbed sleep, and even more so fragmented sleep in the higher risk of um, the position of Alzheimer's plaques in the brain. This is what the research has shown, and it makes total sense because what happens is that the brain is constantly taking care of the rest of the body. And I'm sure that Dr. Walker mentioned that, but the only chance that the brain really has to take care of itself is during sleep and specifically during a phase of, of sleep called slow wave sleep or deep sleep, which goes in cycles throughout the night. And it's when your body is like completely still. You're not having dreams, you're not moving at all. And then your brain can let go, it can let go of your body, it doesn't have to make you dream. And what happens is that a specific system in the brain is called the glymphatic system gets activated and power washes the brain, removing all the waste products, all the impurities and all the toxins, including Alzheimer's plaques. So basically sleep is super important for brain clearance, which is the only way that the brain has to really clean itself up. So if you don't sleep, 
and you don't get enough of this specific type of sleep, you have a higher chance of building up these Alzheimer's plaques in your brain, even already in midlife, which is what the recent research has shown. And I think since so many people have trouble sleeping, this is a very good reminder that prioritizing sleep hygiene should be part of a lifestyle. There are so many things we need to do, but we, we do need to sleep. We need to prioritize sleep. So you're saying, or are you saying, that the lifestyle changes can be effective not only for prevention, but can can memory loss be improved by changing some of the lifestyle? It's a really good question. The clinic, There are clinical trials that are looking into that right now, and some really large-scale studies have shown that changing your lifestyle for the for the best can really improve cognitive performance. Nobody has yet shown that you can really reverse Alzheimer's disease, like in in large scale IRB sponsored clinical trials. But I think we're trying to do that. I think it's very hard to do that, but so many people are trying. And I think the overall understanding is that it takes more than just one thing. Right. It's not just eating broccoli that's going to help you. You need, you need to really lead a very healthy lifestyle overall. And actually, we just published the results of this Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic uh, for the past 18 months. And Dr. Richard Isaacson, who's the PI, showed improvement in cognitive performance in people who really followed the recommendations that were given. So let's say that they were given like 30 recommendations and they were able to actually follow like 15 or 16 consistently over time, they showed huge improvements in cognitive performance, even in people who were not deficient to start with. So we do have a lot of hope and we do believe that Alzheimer's prevention should be multifactorial and more like an integrated medicine perspective where you really try and and, and tackle every single thing that you can. And the more things you can do right, the higher your chances of success. And again, I really strongly believe that women should do it slightly different and pay more attention to hormones and menopause and thyroid function. And this should be a conversation over whether or not taking estrogens is recommended and and suitable and who should do it and who shouldn't and why. Mm -hmm. We're trying to change the conversation around women's brain health in that direction. And that they can find in your book, right? The information is latest. Okay. But you have another book. So I want to move from the focus on disease and let's focus on performance because you have another book that just came out in 2018 before this one, right? Brain Uh, food. Brain food, right. So how can your diet help you with day-to-day mental performance? It really does. There are many studies showing that diet is is quite specifically important for the long term as it is for the short term. I think the studies that were most provocative in my mind uh, and also most helpful were those showing that water is just so important for cognitive performance, like now. There are Small-scale trials, however, they're very good ones. They're, they're done very, very well, showing that if you take a number of people and randomize them into those who are given a glass of water before taking a test and those who are slightly hi- dehydrated before taking the same test, those who just simply 
drink a glass of water have like 30% higher reaction times and they have 14% better memory performance. Or it's really quite exciting, I think, that just keeping hydrated can have an immediate impact on mental power in some ways. And what I what I think is that those people might have been a little bit dehydrated to start with because the average person in the United States is mildly dehydrated. And the reason I bring it up constantly is that water is cheap, anyone should drink, and 43% of Americans report drinking less than four cups of water a day. And almost 10% report drinking none for a number of reasons. So the brain is 80% water and is really sensitive to dehydration to the point that even just a very mild dehydration level like two to 4% water loss, which is really nothing, can create neurological symptoms like dizziness, brain fog, fatigue, and even brain shrinkage or reduced brain volumes, which you don't want. You don't want that at any age, right? And the brain volume just goes back up as soon as you drink water, you rehydrate. So I think it's really important to talk about that. That's that's amazing. Do you drink water? Oh, I do. Yeah, I'm all, and I always have it here with me with the. Oh yeah, I do. Right. Yeah. A lot of my friends are like, I don't like the taste of water. I'm like, what was there not to like? It doesn't have one. Right? You no. Know, my family all they all carry bottles of water around all day and their own you know their own uh a cup not that we're b- bottled but i mean yeah it's constantly have water right. with us so yeah that's what we have with our meals too so same um, i grew up drinking water not juice or milk or yeah, yeah. Mm. and certainly not sodas but anyway yeah. so <laughs> Coffee, most likely. <laughs> I have one audience question I want to make sure we get to before you have to go here, Lisa. Um, is there anything that we haven't discussed that you want to be sure you? Yes. Can I talk about women's brains more? Please do. Thank you. I, I just want to say that um, we never talk about women's brains as something to celebrate or praise. And as women, we're kind of treated into thinking that as soon as you hit midlife is the beginning of the end. And I would love to help change this conversation and really refocus on intellectual potential for women at any age. And we've done so much research really showing that women's brains are different from men's brains, not in a Mars and Venus, Barbie and Lego type way, but in an actual biological way that translates into different strengths and also different risks. In that for many years, women were excluded from research for a number of reasons. And we still today teach and practice bikini medicine, which is basically saying that men and women are essentially the same person with different reproductive organs, the parts of the body that can fit under a bikini which is again like saying that from a medical perspective, the only thing that makes a woman a woman is her reproductive organs. And therefore women's health was really born out of this misunderstanding of what a woman is to start with. So the more women demand information about their brains and the faster the research will move forward. And that's super important because brain health is women's health. And we need to take care of our brains because they're literally our most important asset. 
Beautifully said. Thank you. Thank you. I cannot wait to hear some people's responses to that. So, and to keep up with you to see what all you're learning. So, if we can, I have one audience question before you go for certain that I want to get to. Okay. There's a lot of talk about intermittent fasting. So, uh, whether it's, you know, 12, 14, 16 hours a day, is, is that helpful to the body? And the brain. Yeah, it seems to be helpful. It, I, I would say it's not for everyone. It's really important to to talk to a specialist and do it correctly. Um, for some people, like people with hypoglycemia, that could be a little bit of an issue or metabolic uh, disorders that may or may not work. But the science points to prolonged periods of time without eating as a time that your body can actually relax. Right? They were constantly feeding our bodies. Our whole digestive system takes over. All the blood flow needs to go to your stomach and to your intestine for constant uh, breaking down of nutrients. And your body needs to be able to dispose of all the food. Your kidneys are overworked. And that could create inflammation. Overeating ca- can actually create inflammation, which is a problem for your brain as well. So intermittent fasting is a good way to train people in a way to not eat at night. I would say effectively what it does is saying stop eating at a decent time and then don't eat anymore so that when you, you when you have breakfast you're effectively breaking your fast. And this is really it's in part very consistent with tradition. Right? All the blue zones, all people, the centenarians, they do follow a similar lifestyle where you have dinner a little bit early and then don't eat for quite a long time. And that has been associated with longevity for sure, with a lower chance of obesity and diabetes, with a better inflammatory profile, and with a number of benefits. Whether or not that's preventative against cognitive decline in dementia, I believe needs to be proven. But I, for me, it, it kind of makes sense. I, I wouldn't overstructure the fasting, like 12 hours, 14 hours, 16 hours. I don't know about that. I think we're really makes a lot of sense is to refrain from eating long enough that your body has a chance to reset and then eat very healthily the rest of the day. Because I had a friend of mine who was like, okay, I'm doing intermittent fasting. And then the first thing she ate in the morning was a piece of chocolate. And that makes absolutely no sense, right? You're going to send your liver into a sugar shock. So I don't want to do that. But I think a carefully planned intermittent fasting schedule that really works for you as a person could be an asset. Yeah. Mm. Do you do it? I do. Oh, how many hours? I started started just a couple of months ago Uh uh, and uh, saw uh, uh, quite a reduction in weight. More than that, even quite a rise in energy level. Oh, good. That was the most fascinating part to me was what happened when I, when, and what happens to me when I do uh, is just, I have a wonderful energy level. And that really means a lot to me. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And mental presence, right? Yes. Yeah. I also find that it's so important to not 
it really helps people get a little bit detached from food. We, a lot of people are like, oh my God, I have to eat breakfast. I have to have a snack. I have to have a piece of chocolate after lunch. Once you train your body and brain to appreciate that you can go without food for a while and you're going to be totally fine. And That's very empowering, I feel, no? You can make better choices. Some items, if you will, Lisa, that I would have been attracted to to eat, <laughs> I no longer really have a craving for. That was another part of it, right? Yeah, because your your taste buds change after a little while. Like you start craving healthier foods the rest of the day because you want you want your whole day to make sense. But you don't want to not eat anything for fourteen hours and then eat pizza and cheese the other twelve. I guess ten. Uh. Right. So, yeah. Well, thank you for being here. If there anything else you'd like to leave us with? Yes, I guess the the take home message for me is always that taking care of your brain takes discipline in some ways, but the benefits are really for life. And the sooner you start, the better. And they, for me as a scientist, I really changed my entire approach to brain health by just thinking that. You want to treat your brain like your best friend. You really want to pay attention to the health of your brain, feel like your brain is a part of you that you can access and you can support and you can cherish and that you actually have to take care of like the rest of you. Where can people find you and follow you? They can find me on Instagram. My handle is Dr. Mosconi, so D-R underscore Mosconi, M-O-S-C-O-N-I. And also on my website, which is simply lisamosconi.com. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. We'll have to have you on again. I would love it. Thank you. I would love that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. Look, we have lots of great interviews on Melda Live, so hit like and subscribe. There's much more to come.